Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. Thank you for your kind welcome. Kenneth, thank you for um, giving me the opportunity and privilege to be involved in uh, Palmetto. I know it's one of those important transition times, and as we're going to see today, God does some of his best work in those transition times. Why don't you take your Bible and turn to the first of three locations where we're going to look today. Uh, The first will be Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and then we'll jump over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 if you want to get ahead, and then we'll finish today at 1 John chapter uh, 3 and verse 2. And uh, I want to talk to you about being like Christ, but I want to talk to you about being like Christ from a little bit of an unusual perspective. I want to tell you a story to begin with, a true story uh, from the early to middle uh, 1800s. There was a a man by the name of uh, Dr. Ignaz Samovice, real man, real person in history. He was a Hungarian doctor. He was working uh, in a German hospital in eastern Germany. Um, And during that time, he grew concerned because In his medical practice, compared to the medical practices of other friends, there was a high infant death rate and a high death rate of mothers giving birth within his hospital. As a matter of fact, it was so high, it was about three or four times as high as the other hospitals that he um, began to compare to. And over the course of time, he was just observing things. And in the powers of observation, he made a conclusion that maybe what they ought to do is when they leave the surgical wing to go and deliver an infant, instead of just rushing over, that they ought to wash their hands. Now, in a year of COVID, that seems like a pretty practical piece of advice. Most of us are washing our hands uh, more than we ever have in our life. But remember, this was before Louis Pasteur's germ theory where the discovery was, hey, that there are germs on our hands and anytime we touch something, we leave a bacteria pattern behind. Well, can you imagine coming out of surgery where all sorts of medical procedures were done and then just rushing right over and delivering a child? Well, of course, there was going to be all sorts of transfer bacteria. And eventually, that bed sickness, as it was known back then, caught up with many children, took their lives, caught up with many women, took their lives. And so as he began to make this observation and began to lead his hospital in the practice of just simply using a a simple chlorine scrub, a little chlorine within a water mixture, and washing up, they would go and then deliver the babies. And it was so effective that their infant mortality rate was half of what the other hospitals were. So they went from being more than three times the death rate to less than half the death rate. Now, you would expect a doctor like that would be absolutely celebrated. You would expect a doctor like that would be revered and loved and appreciated. But that's not what happened. As a matter of fact, it was the exact opposite thing that happened. As the, past, or as the doctor began to make his way around teaching and kind of giving word and evidence of, of what his practice had discovered, um, he was scorned. He, he was outcast. His lecture series was protested. Before long, he was fired from his hospital. His medical license was taken away. He was declared insane. He was put into an insane asylum slash prison. Later, he was beaten within that prison and eventually died trying to save people's lives. Today, he's known as the savior of mothers and babies. 
That's the title that's been given to him. You know, it's called today the Samwise effect. It's that idea when something is true, something is right, but there's a rejection of it, a wholesale rejection of it because it cuts against the grain of everything else and people struggle to believe that it could be true. You know, that's exactly what Jesus faced. We might call it the Jesus effect instead of the Samwise effect. Because after all, the Bible says that Jesus came to that which was his own in John 1, but his own did not accept him. The Bible's filled with stories. As a matter of fact, stories of religious people. We would fall into that category, people going to church on a Sunday morning. We would fall into that category of religious people. But during his day, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the other groups as we know them today. And most of them rejected Jesus. He walked on water. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He taught with authority. He showed compassion. And he even rose from the dead, but many, many people rejected him. You know, you have to live the Christian life for a little bit of time until you realize and kind of come to that conclusion that it's really easy for me to do the very same thing. For me to be so ingrained in the patterns and practices of what I think the faith is about and to wholly miss what it is that God is seeking to do. To wholly miss how God is at work. To wholly miss the priority, the emphasis given to something. You know, in the work that I do as um, a pastor now that travels around the country and across the world, helping churches recover their mission, we, we say it this way, that there are certain things that belong in the upper room and there are some things that belong in the lower room. And the problem for us comes when we get the things that belong in the lower room in the upper room and the things that belong in the upper room in the lower room. Let me describe it in specific. A, a lot of people love to get pastors in the upper room. We call it putting a pastor on a pedestal. A lot of people like to get programs in the upper room and think that a program is sacred or just the right program or the only program that can be run. Uh, some people get facilities, a, a church plant uh, facility uh, in the upper room and they think, oh, this is the facility that has to be used and those become the sacred things. But the reality is the Bible tells us all of those things are just wineskins. They really belong in the lower room. The things that belong in the upper room, the really important things are things like Jesus, things like the gospel, things like the mission of the church. And unless we get those things in the upper room and the things that belong in the lower room, in the lower room, church can, can really be turned upside down until that happens. We, we don't really see the power of God. We really don't see the work of God. We, we really don't have a clarity about God until everything is in its right place. You know, we can learn that in theory, but it's a whole lot better when we learn it in practice. And I know in my own life, and I think back over the 40 plus years that I've been a follower of Jesus, and I think back over the 27 years of pastoral and leadership ministry within the church, and I can tell you there have been a lot of times where I've gotten my focus on absolutely the wrong thing. I've gotten my focus on absolutely everything except that which is most important. And as a believer, I can tell you the Bible is incredibly clear about those things that are really most important. 
We can get all those things in the upper room, and even sometimes the truth is hard for us to hear because things are so out of order in our lives. And it was the same way. Even the disciples, even the apostles themselves, when they were asking Jesus to um, unpack the parable of the soils, they said, Jesus, we don't understand this. And of course, we have to have humility to even understand that we don't understand And so the question becomes this, for us as individual people, what does God desire to have happen in our life? I remember as a kid thinking a lot about this. Uh, My younger sister, Julie, even said it to me one time. She said, I don't understand after we become believers why God just doesn't take us to heaven. And she articulated for me something that, that I had kind of thought myself, I would kind of considered myself, but I don't know that I could really understand it. And so it was one of those areas of study that, that I looked at carefully, and today I want to share with you where I landed and show you why it's important. So let's look together today and understand this theme, that what God wants for his disciples after we've come to a place of conversion of being born again Here's what Jesus wants for you and me. He wants for us to be like him. He wants us to be like Jesus. Now, let me show you how the Bible talks about that. Let's go first to uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, and let's look at what the Bible says, because we're going to lay down the biblical basis for this, and then I'm going to show you how this is the work of the entire Godhead across human history, and then finally we're going to make a few conclusions about what the Bible says, if this is true. So let's understand from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, this truth. For God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now here's the first truth if you're using your sermon notes to kind of keep a, a little tab on today's message. That the Bible is teaching us we were justified to be like Jesus. Now the word justified, I love the way my seminary professor unpacked it. I've used it for years. He simply said to be justified, a biblical word that is used often, it describes for us to be made just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. In other words, to be able to be in fellowship with God because he is holy, to be able to live with God, to fellowship with God, to be able to enjoy all of that relationship with him because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he died for our sins, rose again from the grave, victorious over sin and death. Every Easter we celebrate it, but in reality, every Sunday we celebrate it because this is the eternal work of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we recognize this was the work done in the past. We, were, we recognize that there's some language there that's kind of interesting language. As a matter of fact, the word predestined and foreknew is in there. Now, if you're like most Christians that have been around the church for a while, you step back and you have one of two reactions. You either go, wow, we're in a passage that's really fascinating because foreknowledge and predestination talk about the category of salvation called election, and man, I'm all in, I'm all ears, I want to hear what that has to say. Or you go, oh, predestination and foreknowledge, election, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed by that. I'm not sure that I can even think in the framework of what the Bible reveals. And, and here's what I would say to you about that. And my purpose is not to preach on election today or foreknowledge today or predestination today. Interesting and important topics, though they are in the Bible. Well, what I would say to you is this very passage is an example of missing the point. 
Because when you read this passage, the primary focus of the truth that is being described is not that about the mystery that stands behind how God accomplished salvation. The point of this passage and the focus in the original language is what God was seeking to do in the work of salvation. Look at the verse again. Notice the phrase that's underlined. To be conformed to the likeness of his Son. You, you see, we can't know everything that God knows or we would be God. We can't understand and comprehend everything that God understands and comprehends or we would be God. But the idea is that God is making known to us what the purpose of his thoughts are. And here's the context of the passage that in Adam, everybody died. He represented us. He was the first man, and he sinned in the garden, and the Bible says when he sinned, he rebelled against God, the relationship with God was broken, and God began an eternal work of a long story, a long story of all of human history in order to reveal himself, and the apex of that story, the climax of that story is when Jesus died and rose again to overcome all of the sin, all the bondage, and all the death, and all the decay that the world has experienced since then. And the Bible says that God not only overcomes it, but he does a new work. Because now we have a new representative head, this passage says, and that person is Jesus. And the goal is exactly what that phrase says, to be like him. And so the point is this, that Jesus died in order that we might be like him. And notice the second verse of Scripture that we're going to look at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18. If uh, the first passage in Romans 8 describes for us the justification so that we can be like him, this passage describes the sanctification that, can be like, that helps us be like him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 says it this way, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, you have to know the context of the story to be able to really appreciate what's going on here. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, as the representative of the people of Israel, would go into the tent of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and meet with God. And the people were scared to death because the glory of God would descend on the mountain in the Ten Commandments and then in the tent when Moses would meet. And there's a great phrase there that says that God would meet with Moses like a man would meet with his friend. And after the meeting was over, Moses would come out and the glory of the Lord would be upon his face. And the glory of the Lord was so overwhelming on the face of Moses that the people asked Moses to put on a veil. Kind of like some of those Middle Eastern movies we've seen with someone with a veil and all you could see was their eyes because the glory of God was so on display. It was scary. It was overwhelming. It was daunting. And so Moses put on this veil. But the point of the story is that we don't need a veil because God wants his glory to be shining through us. And after we've been saved, after we've come to know Jesus as our Savior, justified, now the Bible says the second stage of our salvation is the sanctification. The, the day by day, do you see that phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? It says day by day with ever-increasing glory. Every day is supposed to be the progress towards that which is new. What is it that's new? It's the renewing work of Jesus that is being done, this time through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
He says it is reflecting the Lord's glory, transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, more and more glory. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What an incredible, incredible thing. And, And this for us is the journey of our lives. Have you ever been on a lifelong quest or a lifelong journey? Of course, some of the greatest movies that we love to watch are about the the lifelong quest, the Indiana Jones type lifelong quest. I'm seeking the Holy Grail. I'm seeking the sacred diamond. I'm seeking that which is special. And what the Bible does for us is it puts out in front of us something very special. You know, I can personalize the lifelong pursuit of something. Uh, I remember in third grade when Mrs. Yates, my third grade teacher, who just happened to be the Bradley or the Cleveland City Schools superintendent's wife. So she really knew education. She was a real authority, right? Because she was the best third grade teacher and the superintendent's favorite third grade teacher. And I remember one day when Ms. Yates looked at me and she said, son, you, you just can't read. And, and I was a third grader, and I didn't want my friends to hear that. And I was sitting at a reading table with her, and, and she said, something is wrong with your eyes. And um, I didn't know what that meant, but I remember standing there that day when my mom came to pick me up, and she said, you need to get him to Dr. Duncan. Something's wrong with his eyes. I don't know what it is, but it is preventing him from reading. And I went to Dr. Duncan a few weeks later, and Dr. Duncan looked at my eyes, and and he said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with his eyes. Now, today we know what that is. We know that is dyslexia, right? And that was what was wrong with my eyes. And over the years, I didn't know all the challenges that I was dealing with, but I know that I had a lot of people in my life that guided me. And I can look back to Ms. Carter, uh, my fifth grade teacher, and and, and I can look back to Ms. Hintz, my sixth grade teacher, And I can look back to a middle school teacher. And I can look back to a couple of high school teachers. And maybe the biggest breakthrough of all was a college professor who began to talk to me about auditory learning instead of just sight learning. And and along the way, I had many mile markers of challenge. I, I remember being enrolled in every reading program that was available through Mayfield Elementary School and the Cleveland City Library. Because my mom knew that I needed to be able to read. And, and she would take me to the library in the summers and pro- put me in these reading programs. And instead of finding books and reading, I would go play in the janitor's closet and in the basement because that interested me more. And I wrestled it and struggled it and struggled. But I can tell you today, I sure am thankful for those moments and journeys along the way, for the people along the way that God used, and for the patient work in my life. And can I tell you, it's a journey like that on the spiritual side of things, not the reading side of things, but far more important on the spiritual side of things that your heavenly Father is looking over the balcony of heaven into your life with a long view of what he's wanting to do in your life day by day with ever-increasing glory. And not just teaching you to read, but teaching you something far more important, teaching you to become like Jesus. Now, he's not wanting to put you in sandals and robe and grow you a long beard, though long beards are cool and I like them in this day and time. But what he's looking for is something else. He's looking to see how Jesus can be on display in your life. The characters of Christ, the characteristics of Jesus, the love, the joy, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the self-control, which, by the way, is going to be where we pick up the next three weeks in the three-part series on 
the three different fruits that have three dimensions in our life as we learn to become like Jesus. You see, the fruits of the Spirit is one of those places where it's summarized for us in the Bible. Hey, here's what it would look like if you lived for Jesus. You see, this is the work of God day by day. In other words, today, when you leave church today, the question is going to be not how excited do you get in church or how much your Sunday school class encouraged you or how good it was to live within community of the church body. What's really important is this is how your feet hit the street out there when it comes to having the right attitude and the right behaviors and a character that is formulated and informed by Jesus Christ. There's a third and final piece that I'll share with you today. Look with me at 1 John chapter 3. If you turn there, navigate over on your phone or on your iPad. This third piece is described this way, that we will be glorified and be like Jesus. Here's how he says it. Now John, the apostle, weighs in with Peter. And he says, dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we shall be has not yet been fully made known to us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. You see those words? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he really is. So, so here he addresses glorification, if you will, the final step of salvation. We've got God's plan of justification, the Spirit's work of sanctification, and now Jesus' full revelation of what our, our final glorification is going to look like. And, and he says, dear children, now notice the language there speaks to us about adoption. That's another way that the Bible talks about justification is that we are adopted as the children of God. So he said, I loved you enough to bring you into my family, and I loved you enough to bring you into my family, and I loved you enough to bring you into my family. He brings all of us into his family, and then he assures us and speaks about this expectation. Look, we don't know everything. That's what John says. We don't know everything, but we do know this. We know he's going to appear. We know that when he appears, we'll see him for who he really is. And we know that when he appears and and we see him for who he is, he is going to take that final step of making us exactly what Jesus has always wanted us to be. You know, I travel a good bit, and uh, the Atlanta airport's one of the reasons why we moved to the south side of Atlanta, to be able to utilize that airport to get everywhere. And I can tell you this, no matter where I am in the world... There comes a point in that trip, as exciting as it may be, as fun as it is to be there, and as exciting as it is to help churches recover the mission and pastors see the vision and and help the church fulfill what God has called them to do or help the denomination with the work they do. But I can tell you, in that trip, somewhere in a hotel room, a restaurant, meeting, or whatever, there's a moment where my heart turns towards home. When I go, hey, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to see my wife. I'm ready to crawl in bed in my own bed. I'm ready to be with my kids. I'm ready to put my feet under my own table. I'm ready to be in my neighborhood and work in my yard and do all those things that that home makes you long for. And, And I will tell you this, no matter how good your home is in this world, every single one of us have had a sense and a moment where we go, hey, I don't belong in this world. 
I just don't feel at home. I don't feel comfortable. I'm longing for something better. I'm longing for something more. And what that is is the Garden of Eden syndrome where sin entered the world and now the world is uncomfortable and the longing for that place where everything is perfect and right. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. And the focus is on him. Because what makes it perfect and right is not me. (laughs) What makes it perfect and right is him. Now just pause with me and see where we've been in the last 25 minutes. Let's think about it for a minute. The work of the eternal Godhead, past, present, and future, is all focused in these three verses upon one idea. God the Father had a plan to make you like Jesus. God the Spirit is working every day to make you like Jesus. The image of Jesus is always before us and one day the final step of God's glory being accomplished in your life is going to make you like Jesus. He did it in the past, he's doing it in the present, and you can hope for it in the future. Now listen, that gets to be a pretty profound thing. When you can say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where all three of those show up in the scriptures, it becomes what we call a significant stop in the word of God. And listen, if God's work in your past or your present and in your future is all intended to accomplish this, can you imagine how important it is for you to be like Jesus? Now listen, there's an easy and obvious application to this. And I'm going to start there, but I'm not going to end there. The easy and obvious application of this is be saved, be sanctified, and be secured. See that on the notes in front of you? I mean, that's the easy and, and really what I'd call low-hanging fruit. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, be saved from your sins. That's what that language means, is be rescued from your sin. Jesus is the great rescuer. Repent of your sins. Say, I'm sorry, God. Turn from that and turn to Jesus. And be sanctified. If, if you're a believer in Jesus today, the easy application is, hey, I need to be walking in fellowship with Jesus And and then maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're dealing with cancer and death is immediate. Or maybe you're dealing with a crisis and and, and the pressure is high and you need some orientation to help you. Well, be secure in Jesus because the eternal God is working his work in your life for these purposes. But listen, there's more than just the easy and obvious application. Look at number two with me today. Number two talks about our attitude. Allow Christ's attitude to be formed within you. You know, for me, um, I've always heard the phrase, attitude is everything. And I really do understand that beginning with the right attitude usually is the first step in leading to the right behaviors. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about being like Jesus when he talks about developing the right attitude. One of the most famous passages in the Bible Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, he says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, the reality is it's, it's got to hit our attitudes, which is why we would say church is so important for our heart's orientation. My wife and I, when we were transitioning out of leading on a Sunday morning every single Sunday for 25 plus years, said what an unusual thing it is to to not be leading on a Sunday morning, but we started sitting in a pew periodically when we weren't preaching or traveling, and, and we'd sit there, and we said, look, Sunday is a reorientation. 
And, and my hope is today is a real reorientation for you that you go, yeah, I get hit by the world and see all the world and struggle with myself. And, and yet today, in a day like this in church where we worship and where we fellowship and where we hear the word of God, good things happen in our life that have the potential, that hold the possibilities of your attitude and my attitude being shaped into the, the attitude of Jesus. But here's what's really important is what happens tomorrow morning. And that's why what Stephanie's doing with your uh, PB Bible study, I believe on her Facebook uh, page, is really important because it holds the possibility of just tilting the world one degree more towards what Jesus wants you to be day by day. But it doesn't just end with that attitude. Look at the third thing. It looks at the disciplines. We need to enter into the crucible of the disciplines and oftentimes the difficulty of life. Because it's within that attitude and those disciplines where we feel the crucible that those possibilities of being formed into the likeness of Christ hold the greatest hope. You see, for me, um, I think I'm like most people, and maybe you can identify with this, I'm not really transformed until there's pressure on. But when there's pressure on or when I feel challenged or discouraged or overwhelmed, it's in that moment that God has done his greatest work in my life. It's in that moment where God has done his greatest work in my marriage. It's in that moment where God has done his greatest work in my parenting. It's in that moment where Jesus changes me the most. Now, most of us just want to run out of the crucible as quickly as we can and end the pressure. And that's, of course, a natural tendency. But the spiritual tendency is to recognize that when the pressure's on, when the heat is high, when, when it feels hot, man, that's the place where God does his absolute greatest work. Here's the final thing for you. Don't follow your human, your human instincts, but instead let the Spirit speak. You know, the human instincts will lead you astray. You'll say, hey, this is what I want to do. Hey, this is what makes me feel good. Hey, this is what I think I really want. But you know, the Bible cautions us about that. The Bible says that there's a way which seems right into a man, but that way leads to death. Solomon, when he's teaching his, his uh, kids, when he's teaching his boys, he says, now look, don't follow that way of your flesh. Instead, follow this formula. Knowledge plus wisdom equals understanding. Knowledge, biblical truth, plus wisdom, spiritually applied truth to a situation that comes to a place of understanding, understanding your human heart, understanding the situation, leads you to a place where spiritually and biblically you actually can make a right decision. Probably won't be an easy decision, but it'll be the right decision, and it'll be the one that makes you most Christ-like. I want to end with a little story. Our family loves to travel, and years ago we had a fun experience where Wendy's brother was playing football, and um, he was playing uh, in the Alamo Bowl, and so we went to San Antonio to enjoy the Alamo, and I remember seeing a picture. I'll put the picture up on the uh, screen. I didn't take this picture, but I remembered the story. As you go in the Alamo, you turn around to the left, and there it is on the wall, and, and there's a picture of a man who um, is actually the nephew of a man who died at the Alamo. 
And the story goes like this, and, and it's written there, no picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle, James Bonham, by the same name. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for them. You know, the Bible says we don't have a picture of Jesus. I think there's a reason why we don't. Because if we had a picture of Jesus, we would create all sorts of rituals. We'd have all kinds of activities. And we'd bow down, pray to, try to control the picture of Jesus. But what we have instead is the portrait of Jesus in the scriptures. And then we have this encouragement that says, be like him. Be like him. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes as we close our service today. And I think as we close, um, it's going to be a time where we sing together and uh, maybe reflect together. Not sure how you came in the room and how the Spirit's been working and how the study of God's Word is impacting your life today. But here's what I would say. It's always right. It's always right to respond when Jesus is speaking. So I'm going to come down here to the front, and I'll be here with a mask on. And if you just need somebody to pray for you, um, I'll be here to pray with you. If you just need to pray at one of these altars, or you can certainly pray right where you are. There's no magic about coming forward. There's no magic about sharing it with me. But if you just need somebody to shepherd you, to encourage you, to pray for you, I'll be right here just for a moment. So when I pray, when we stand to sing, when Jed comes to lead us, we'll just stand at that moment. If you need to slip out and come, you can. If you need somebody to point you to Jesus, boy, I'd be glad to do that now or after the service is over. Here's the thing. Following after Jesus will never, ever, ever disappoint you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word which challenges us. Thank you for how we've seen Jesus in the scriptures today and this long eternal work that you have been doing, Lord. We pray today that our hearts would be receptive, that our ears would hear. And God, now that as we hear your word and respond to it, that we would leave here being ready to live for you and serve you more like Jesus than before. For it's in his name that we pray. And the church said, amen. Let's stand together.